So here we go. In Acts chapter 25, we're toward the very end of this book. We have been walking through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a transitional period. It's a history book of the first church. And so if you want to know how did this whole thing start, uh, man, this, this is where we go. This is the narrative that Luke, who not only wrote the gospel according to Luke, the good news of Jesus and who he is and what he's done and the work that he began and the teachings that he passed on to us, he also wrote basically the gospel 2.0 known as the Acts or the actions of the apostles. So we believe that this is the, not only the good news as it plays out in history, but it's like the good news come to life. And this is what the people who are changed by and believe this good news begin to look like. And it's not just a club, but it's a movement. And you come to find in the book of Acts, if we are going to be a church that really loves the gospel and really believes that Jesus has done something for us greater than anything else in all the world, then, then this is a good place to start. And if, if we're going to fight about stuff, then let's at least in the beginning days, let's fight about things like the good news of Jesus and God's word for us in our lives. Let's, let's, let's put off the fight about the color of the carpet, right? For some of you who have been a part of a church and you've been burned by that, you know what I'm talking about. Um, for those of you who don't, bless you, you don't have any baggage. Good for you. Uh, but churches, religious people like to fight about stuff that doesn't matter. And this, I hope, gives us kind of this really great, solid foundation for us to find ourselves in as a, a baby church coming to life. We want to know what the first Christians believed. We want to know what they did. We want to know what it looked like to be a Christian who was taught by the apostles, who was passed on those teachings by Jesus himself. So in that transition that Jesus has inaugurated between the old, the way that things used to be, and the new, the ways that things are beginning to be and are ultimately going to be, begins and is culminated in Jesus Christ. Such that when Jesus walks on the earth, we see the beginning of the end of the old way. That which is broken in the world, that which has been falling apart, and that which is corrupt, and that which is evil, that which is destructive, that exists most deeply in the human heart, ever since the fall that we hear about in the book of Genesis, has got an end date. It now has an expiration date, because Jesus has landed the invasion, right? So, so there's a difference, I guess, between the end of World War II and D-Day, correct? D-Day was just when the beginning of the end was sounded, right? That was when the landing of the invasion hit Normandy and hit the continent of Europe. And it wasn't the end of the war. There was a great deal of war to be fought. But that was the day signaling that the allied powers were going to put an end to this war. So also we see the beginning of the end of that which is broken and destroyed in all of creation. As I've shared with you that even Oprah, who's not a Christian, sees this and agrees with this, right? Sees that something's broken and something must be done. Something must be fixed. Mind you, uh, you know, given a car underneath the seat, you know, that, that's a good start. But like this is the beginning of the end of all that has devastated all of mankind from the beginning. And Jesus has announced it, that he's put it to death. Namely, the one thing that you and I know we have to fear more than anything else, which is death. Jesus put to an end. We see the beginning of the end here in the book of Acts. That that which is coming about is also, though, a preview. It's a picture, an image, if you will, of the kingdom that is to come. We see the end of the old creation, but we also start to see a picture of the new. The new creation that's brought into this world by Jesus' resurrection. A new way of being. In, In a world where people who die and they don't stay dead, something's different. And so on Easter Sunday, when Jesus walks out of the grave, having once been dead and is now alive, there's a picture of something new, right? There's a picture of something that's completely foreign to you and I and our experience in this world. Namely, that that which is devastating and has power over us and gives us fear and grips us with a great deal of motivation has been put to death. And we begin to see what it looks like to have no fear over death and to begin to see a new life, a new creation. And that new creation is visible in the followers of Jesus. And so that which was visible in Jesus' teaching and in his miracles and what he accomplished by his death on the cross and arising from the dead has been passed on by the power of the Holy Spirit to the followers of Jesus, namely you and me who are the church. Such that if you want to see what heaven looks like, if you want to see what the new kingdom, the new creation looks like, this will blow your mind, you look at the church. If you want a preview of what God's kingdom looks like, 
of what it looks like when Jesus is king and is not opposed, you look at the church. And if you find yourself saying, I know what churches look like and it's not that, it's not heaven on earth, right? Well, then, then you begin to see the power of the resurrection and the need for God's grace and the power of His Spirit. Because by our own effort, bringing about a new kingdom here on earth is virtually impossible. In fact, I would argue, will ultimately be our own kingdom set up and we'll just call it Jesus' kingdom. But it will be for our own purposes. And many people have come along and tried in the name of doing good to save the world and do good things. But the preview of the kingdom to come can be seen in the church. Not because the church can save the world, but because the church has been given a preview of what happens when Jesus saves the world. It's not for you and to me to save the world or even to know when the kingdom of God is going to come fully and magnificently here on earth. It's just for you and to me to tell the story of how that new kingdom is now coming in our own lives. And you and I who are in Christ are now witnesses to heaven. We're witnesses. We have a preview. We've got a, we've got a, a telescope into the future and what the kingdom of God might look like. And this book of Acts is the picture, the history book, of the transition between the beginning of the end and then the beginning of the end, the capital E. And that which is broken and is beginning to fall away and disappear by the good news of Jesus can still be seen and we look back, but we can also from this period look forward and begin to see the new life, the new creation that God has given us. That means that as this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection changes us and draws us into a movement, it means that sometimes people experience new life and they experience a new sense of purpose, but it also means that when we declare this, we also experience adversity, persecution. So much so that the last several chapters of the book of Acts, Luke wants us to be reminded with several different graphic representations of how it is that the world initially responds when we tell them that Jesus has saved it. So I want to pick up at the end, hopefully, of verse 20, maybe verse 24 of chapter 24 and read all the way through 25. As Paul is now being persecuted. He is imprisoned in the ministry that he now is a part of for the rest of the book of Acts. He's doing in chains. Beginning in verse 24. After some days, Felix, that's the previous previous ruler Felix came with his wife Drusilla who was Jewish and he sent for Paul and he heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment Felix like many of us was alarmed and he said go away Paul for the present and when I get an opportunity I will summon you and at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, two years he was rotting in jail, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him, that is Paul, on the way. Hephaestus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, then let them bring charges against him. So after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him he could not prove in his defense neither against the law of the jews nor against the temple nor against caesar have i committed any offense but festus wishing to do the jews a favor said to paul do you wish to go up to jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me but paul said i am standing before caesar's tribunal where i ought to be tried 
To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them, for I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, the predecessor. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute within him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and now here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable and sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges made against him. We hope that as this is God's word, this isn't just something that we read, but in some miraculous way, it actually reads us. We don't only want to open the Bible, but we want the Bible to open us. And in this chapter, I think you find that it is not uncommon for followers of Jesus to have false accusations made against them on account of Jesus Christ and even to be misrepresented in the courts as harmful to society. And yet God is able to make the things of this world serve His own purpose. I think it's clear in this chapter that it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon for followers of Jesus to have false accusations made against them. It's not even uncommon for them to be misrepresented, in this case, in court, in our case, maybe in all of society, as harmful to society. And yet, make no mistake about it, God is able to make the things of this world, even false accusations, even misrepresentations, and He is able to make them serve His own greater purpose. So the contents of this chapter, we see Paul before Festus, and he appeals to Caesar. But then he's also introduced, as we'll see further next week, to King Agrippa, Festus, the man that Festus ultimately submits to. So the key characters here, we've got Festus, high priests, some elders making accusations, we've got Paul, and apparently at some point Caesar, who's made reference to Agrippa and Bernice. And so it's not uncommon, even amidst this whole milieu of characters, that followers of Jesus are falsely accused. But ultimately, we see a beautiful picture, I think, that Psalm chapter 76, verse 10, kind of sounds for us, and its fulfillment can be found in this chapter, that 
The psalmist says, Surely even the wrath of man shall praise you, O Lord. Get that? Even the wrath, even, even the wrath that humans feel against all of things, the things that they want to manipulate and control for their own purposes, even that shall ultimately praise you, O Lord. And even the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. And so even the things that come against God's people or even against God's, God Himself, eventually one day God will wear as a belt. The opponents of God, as we sang, like if, you know, if greater is the one, right? Because greater is the one who's in us, that is Jesus Christ, than he that is in the world. And so that we can say with a great deal of confidence, now that God is for us, who can ultimately be against us? To the point that those who are against God will one day be worn around his belt. Literally, the evil that wages war against God and his purpose and his kingdom on the earth will one day be a notch in God's belt. One day, the evil that wages war against your family, your life, your marriage, your relationships, your your job, this world, this city, one day God's going to have it as a notch on his belt. And check it off the list. Done. Even in circumstances where people are falsely accused, even where people are misrepresented. Because we see this overarching truth that even accusations against us, even accusations against Jesus Christ and all that he taught and all that he accomplished, God can use as an opportunity for testimony. So Luke tells a really cool story of the first... uh, couple of years of the church the first few decades in the book of acts it is really good and accessible for someone like me he's very repetitive so that if you don't get it the first time he tells you multiple times so that you get it so if you remember when the gospel went to philippi so that luke would be very clear that jesus has come and he sets us free he starts a new kind of liberation movement a liberation movement that includes a woman who is very successful a woman who was a fashionista, quite literally. She made her fortune in the fashion industry. And she was converted to Jesus and she is set free from her past. So much that she was a part of starting this very first church and she started showing hospitality to the people in that city in her own home. Even hosting the apostles. Jesus sets those kinds of people free. But in case that's not clear enough, the next person in that very chapter that Luke tells us about is a slave woman who had a gift and people were exploiting her. So you have a picture of a woman who has great authority, great power, great say-so, and then you have a woman who's exploited and used and she's a piece of property. And Jesus comes and sets her free from a demon that oppressed her. And just so you're clear, just so you don't miss that Jesus sets people free who have power and Jesus sets people free who are oppressed, he tells a third story about having set this girl free from this demon oppression, they're then thrown in prison. But you know what happens? Because Luke makes sure that you and you, you and me who are thick and slow get it. What happens when they're in prison? Jesus sets them free. And so Luke does a good job of telling the story of the first church in such a way that it's repetitive. And over the last couple of weeks, and for the next couple of weeks, we see what it looks like to testify to the good news of Jesus and his resurrection in the world. Namely, that it is not met with parties or a grand reception. Often it is met. Often, so, so often, the gospel is met with opposition. So that you and I wouldn't be astounded or surprised when the name of Jesus doesn't immediately bring about a throng of followers. We see here a picture of what it looks like to step out boldly for the name of Jesus. So much so that people are falsely accused and they want to silence the people who talk about Jesus and they will do anything they can. For the last couple of chapters, they've been trying to kill Paul and we see the plot to kill Paul even after two days or two years of rotting in prison is still alive and well. The people that probably had vowed that they would never eat or drink again until they had killed Paul, probably, hopefully, I, I think ate at some point. I doubt this is two years later, the same people, but that same hatred for Paul still existed. So that you and I will know that persecution and opposition in this world to the gospel is not uncommon. So as we shared this last week, uh, man, there's, there's a difference between being persecuted and having your feelings hurt, right? And, and just so we're clear, this, this is real persecution. Even at the end of this chapter, did you get what? Even Festus, Festus, who is by no means a believer, even he appeals to his 
superior officer and is like, I really don't know what to accuse this guy of. I mean, I know they're mad, but even Festus admits here, and Luke wants you to know, this, this is a thing, this is a common thing, that people are going to be mad at the gospel, but they're not going to quite know how to put their finger on it. For Felix, it was about whenever the good news was given to him that there was actual judgment that Jesus is going to save us from. He was like, I don't want to hear anymore. And he couldn't put his finger on it, but Festus can't either. He knows that this Paul doesn't deserve to die. And Luke tells us a story, and he'll continue to tell us stories like this so that we will know that sometimes the gospel is not received. Accusations are made. But make no mistake about it. This this is where a couple, if not the majority, from here to the end of the chapter, of the prison epistles are written. So toward the end of your Bible, there are a couple of books of the Bible that Paul makes reference to having written them in chains, having written them while in prison. So that you will be clear, not only are there accusations and rejection coming from the world, but God's purpose will still be done in spite of it. I don't know what you do in prison, but people empowered by the Holy Spirit, apparently in the first century church, write the Bible. Right? I know you probably write a letter, hey, dear mom, I love you, my bad about that thing that I did that got me thrown in prison or whatever. Right? But Paul, he's like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and write the Bible. Let me, just, let me go ahead and sit right here and be a conduit for the Holy Spirit and just write God's word for the rest of the church. So that you would be clear, even amidst awful, terrible circumstances, God means to accomplish his purpose. Why is it important? I think that probably the majority of you are here having walked across maybe in the last week or month or year some difficult paths. I'm just going to assume that the thing common in the human experience are difficult decisions, heartache, hardship, loss, And yet it seems that we worship a God who actually works all of those things, as awful as they may be, together for good. For those of us who now love God because we've been called according to His purpose, not our purpose. At no point does Paul go, man, I really love being in prison. It's really awesome. In fact, Jesus had to accompany him. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he even complains about being in prison. And he uses a great Old Testament biblical theme. He said, I was abandoned. When I was on trial, I was abandoned. You notice every single particular case where he has to be summoned before a jury or some sort of judge, he has to give an eyewitness testimony and give an account for himself. Apparently, he had some friends that he would have liked to have come to testify on his behalf. And he doesn't throw them under the bus, but in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says that I have been abandoned. And he doesn't use like soft words he used the same word that jesus used when he quoted psalm 22 as he hung on the cross and cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me so it's not as though the situation is perfect it's just that in spite of awful circumstances god means to do something amazing so let me first and foremost be an encouragement to you whatever your path may be good or bad god means to do something beautiful with it And the evidence of the new creation that's coming about in this church is that we are people, not who are perfect, but we are people who have been made right before God. And you'll go, well, I remember what you used to look look like. I remember there are people who could come and testify up here and talk about what I used to look like when I was 13, 15, 16. It's not pretty. But that's not because the gospel isn't that we are perfect. The gospel is that Jesus can make something beautiful out of a whole lot of messed up people. This is a beautiful truth for us. And God continues to speak through this truth. Such that the eyewitness testimony, Paul's story, is what he appeals to in the next chapter. So as we walk through this, we see kind of just some things. I hope now I just want to draw some attention to some stuff. And and then I want to kind of end on a particular theme that wraps up here. This last week we saw that the the way, the picture of the first church as the way, is actually a culmination and a fulfillment of a prophecy of Isaiah that God is going to make a way in the wilderness back to him. Even though the circumstances look bleak and awful like a desert, the way is going to be made like a highway, flat and straight, just like the one across South Dakota, straight to God. 
such that the, the mountains will fall down and be level, the canyons will come level, so that the way of God will be utterly and completely unhindered. And that way, as Jesus says, is himself. I, Jesus says, am the way, the truth, and the life. And this way is the thing that's persecuted. It's a theme that runs through the book of Acts. Following Jesus is being wrapped up in this thing that God has been doing from the beginning that he even previewed to Isaiah about. But then we see another theme that's wrapped up here, namely the picture of Old Testament priests, high priests, leaders, and elders, and the new creation assumption about them. So Festus, we meet a guy who replaces Felix. Felix, as it turns out, was a tyrant, not a really good guy. Um, He was known for a lot of awful things. In fact, he was only um, in control for a short amount of time. But then when he was uh, ultimately, when his bad deeds were were brought to, to the king, to the emperor, he was set aside and replaced with this guy by the name of Festus. Felix apparently was really violent in the way that he settled a debate. There was a riot that was taking place in Macedonia and Josephus, the the, the historian, the Jewish historian, tells us that there was an uprising of the Jews against the Romans, and Felix came in there and wiped out violently, so much so that he created a great deal of enmity and strife against the Roman government felt by the Jews. Why is that important? I don't know if you caught that theme kind of running through there, that Festus had this like pressure by the Jews to keep him in prison. You saw at the very end that Felix actually wanted to do the Jews a favor and left Paul in prison. Even though the Jews wanted Paul dead, he leaves them in prison to do them a favor. Why would he do that? Because ultimately he's trying to keep the peace. The peace is the ultimate goal for any leader in the Roman Empire. And Festus wants to do the same. He jumps right after it. He goes to work. It says within the first week, after three days, Festus went to Jerusalem and he already was trying to appease the people. Why? Because Felix had just been overthrown because he had dealt harshly with the Jews. So he goes to Jerusalem, wants to win the people over, and two years later, after throwing him in prison, the people still want Paul dead. So he responds. He says within the next few days, after he stayed with them not more than eight or ten days, he makes his way back to Caesarea so that he can preside over this case. He crawls, he calls together a tribunal. He starts to take care of the business that I supposedly Felix had left unfinished. And then Paul makes a defense. Now it seems like an innocent request for the Jews to say to Paul, hey, come and and give a defense, make your case for us in front of Jerusalem. A couple of chapters ago that we found out the reason we're even in Caesarea is because there was a plot in Jerusalem to kill Paul. There were people who vowed never to eat again until they had killed Paul. And we find out apparently Luke knows, maybe it's by the nephew again of Paul who makes another appearance as a narc here and maybe he, he tells the story, but for whatever reason Luke knows that the ultimate goal of the people in Jerusalem, the Jews, of calling Paul, back to Jerusalem in verse 3, was that they had an ambush set up to kill him along the way. And so Paul is left with a weird situation, and so is Festus. And Festus says, hey, what do you think about? Maybe I'll do a favor for the Jews. We'll go back to Jerusalem. But Paul knows that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's dead. He's been promised by Jesus he's going to make his account in, in Rome. And so his only other option is to appeal to Caesar. His only other option is to appeal to Caesar. He's left with a situation that is not good. It's out of his control. The circumstances are bleak, but he knows that ultimately he's supposed to testify to Jesus. There's an absence of proof. So much so that there's a great argument that can be made for the corruption of the Jewish elders here, which we'll talk about in a little bit, because even Festus recognizes there's no charges that can be made against him. And his first response, that is Paul, is to say that I have not broken any laws in verse 8. I haven't sinned against the laws of the Jews. I haven't sinned against the temple. And I certainly haven't sinned against Caesar. But he says something interesting, and this is kind of the second thing I think we pick up here from Christians in the first century. He says, Festus, look, I want to do you a favor, or wanted to do a favor for the Jews and wanted to send them there. And Paul says, no, I don't want to die. That's not what I want to do. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. And I ought to be tried before Caesar, kind of maybe calling to Festus ultimate loyalty. And he says, I've done nothing wrong and you know it, in verse 10. In fact, if then I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. 
Stop right there and let that just kind of hang in the air. If I've done anything wrong, I do not seek to escape death. Christians are happy, at least for the rest of the New Testament, we see themes recurring. Christians are happy to submit to the authorities led above them. Mind you who he's talking about here. The emperor that he is appealing to is a man by the name of Nero, who at a certain point later, when he wanted to draw the unity of the people together, asked that they would worship him, and he began to brutally murder Christians, even as a spectacle in the Colosseum of Rome before lions and tigers, because they would not bow down and worship him, and they would worship Jesus as their one true God. But on every other account, Christians follow the law. Why is that important? Why is it important? Because the thing, the one thing that we will not follow, the one thing that we will not do, is we will not worship anything other than Jesus. And so any laid before us we believe has been put there by god for our good even if it's a terrible terrible law and it's a terrible leader and if you think you have reason to complain about the situation into which you were born mind you this was a guy making an appeal to a guy who killed christians so before you you begin as a christian to just berate an administration either for the last eight years or the eight years before that neither of you i hope or neither of you, I think, see that Christians in an awful culture and they still found that God was doing something in spite of it. Even a culture that turned on them and began to kill them. Not because Nero was any good. Not because he liked Nero. Not because Nero had a popular opinion. But in the end, because he believed that God had done something by putting people and governments in our place for our good. Here's what this means, all right? This is what it means to me. I don't know what it means for you. This means I don't break laws, including laws I don't like, right? Namely, as I've shared with some of you, speeding. I would love for the next couple of minutes to make a, like an argument of how speeding is a victimless crime, and if you wanted us to go slow, you should make slow cars, right? right then if you want to make, you know, make slower cars and make worse roads, all right? If you want us to drive a speed limit, then there you go. That's the solution. Don't give us the ability to speed, and, and so I, I, have this, I have a problem against authority in this area. And it's, I hope you can see it. It's like, I, what? You know, you know when I pulled you over? <clears throat> I mean, I, and so I follow the law. I do not speed. It's not because I think it's a good law. I don't. I think it's a terrible law. It's an awful law. I've got to be there in 15 minutes. If my car can make it there in nine, why shouldn't I? And so there's this, there's this thing even in me that rails against that which is above because I disagree with it. And I think I can even make a pretty good case against it. But notice that isn't the law that I'm meant to disobey. If I, as a Christian, am going to engage in civil disobedience, it had better be for the sake of the gospel and not for the sake of my own kingdom. Because my desire to speed has nothing to do with the good news of, of Jesus and his ability to save people. Nothing. It has everything to do with my own worship of comfort, my worship of control, the picture that I'm in control and I'm the king here and I get to do what I want and make my own rules. And this paints a picture. And Titus even, is, um, Paul tells us to Titus that we should do everything we can to submit to authorities. Why? Because they're good? No. But because we are creating for ourselves a witness. We are creating for ourselves a witness that people will actually listen. So when we have to break a law and when we say Caesar or President fill in the blank, I can't obey this law people won't go oh that's normal christians always disobey laws instead they'll perk up their ears and go whoa there must be something about this civil disobedience only has power it only has character if you are already obeying other laws otherwise you're just lawless and so paul says look if i deserve to die then i deserve to die i accept the consequences of my actions i accept them and in doing so, he paints this beautiful picture of the kind of example that Christians have in the world. So Christian, like, be actively engaged in the political process. All right? For some of you who are millennials, uh, I just, that hurts me. I want to just skeptically and cynically disengage and be like, they're all corrupt, it's evil, I don't want to touch it. 
but actively engage in the political process because God has put those politicians in place. God has put the government in place, believe it or not, as bad as it might be, for your good. And it is for you and I to obey them, to participate in it. Because when the time comes, when the time comes for us to disobey the law for the sake of the gospel, it will be a loud and clear signal to the world that we believe in a kingdom that's greater than this. We believe in a kingdom with no walls, no boundaries. We believe in a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that is not of this world. So set the stage, Christian. Follow the law. Get up earlier so you don't have to speed. I don't know. Pay your taxes so that the moment when it comes for us to disobey because the gospel is at stake and the lordship of Christ is at stake, that we can disobey and the world will know what people are serious because they wouldn't otherwise just break the law, would they? So you, Christian, and me, Christian, we are setting the stage for a time when we have to stand up for the gospel. Even if it means being falsely accused. Notice the, the last part. They, they accuse them of some sort of harm. So the third thing I see here, not only is it we're falsely accused or Christians will be falsely accused or be prepared to be falsely accused, but also like there's this compelling case made apparently for the culture that there's some harm that's meant to be done by, to society by, by people of faith. Did you catch that? Like there's something that they're believing that's harmful. This is ultimately what gets Christians killed by the emperor Nero. But in this particular case, I, I think you can apply that directly to our own culture. And you hear this regularly that like religion is the ultimate source of evil in the world. Right? Religion, it's religion. That's, that's where all the evil is done. And here's where I want to kind of wrap up in this theme that we see. It's different from the Old Testament and the New Testament. The difference between the Old Covenant and then this New Covenant do you see the Old Testament elders that are pictured here are mentioned 18 different times. The word elder is 18, found 18 different times in the book of Acts. And this is the last time that it's spoken of. And in this particular case, it's referenced to Old Testament Jewish leaders. And so on a regular basis, we see in verse 15 that chief priests and elders of the Jews laid out their case against because their eldership was related directly to the law. And from this period on, this phrase disappears from the New Testament. And it's replaced by a new phrase that is the apostles and the elders. So it used to be the priests, the chief priests and elders. And then now, for the rest of the time after this, that has no authority over Christians. But instead now, there's a new elder, a new pastor, a new bishop. And their loyalty is not to the law, but it is to the gospel. Among primitive peoples, there's a, a, a form of authority that's typically invested in people who are, by virtue of their greater age, assumed to have greater wisdom, greater experience. And the elders spoken of throughout the Old Testament fit that particular category. All throughout the Old Testament, lo, the elders served on local magistrates. Elders served to bring murderers to trial, as in Deuteronomy 19 and 21. They punished even a disobedient son in, verse, in chapter 21. Elders are a part of enforcing the law, verse tw chapter 27, for noncompliance with uh, marriage laws and slander in Deuteronomy 22 and 25, and even conducting the service of taking unwitting violations of the law by the people before God. And so this judge and officer mentality of elders has in this chapter come to an end. And for a very specific purpose, and I would argue the gospel can be seen inside it. You see, the elders in the New Covenant aren't concerned with the law. They're concerned with the Gospel. Make sure you understand that. That in this new kingdom, leadership is connected to multiplication, not control. So for us, as a church, we structure things based on multiplication of the Gospel, not for control. Multiplication, not control. This is important. Because these Old Testament elders were very much interested in control. Right? Look at their motives. You can even see this. And you begin to see what this new covenant is supposed to look like. Look at their relationship. Are they interested in Paul's well-being? Right? Or are they trying to kill them in this case? So they aren't necessarily like, oh, I hope Paul would, I sure hope he would change his mind and come back into the fold and be back one of us. No. They're like, we hope Paul would shut his mouth and we hope he dies. If he doesn't shut his mouth, we swear we will not eat again before we kill him. 
Notice the difference. Notice the difference that the gospel makes in that kind of leadership. We look at things that are outside of the norm and outside of God's law, and we look at them and we see it as rebellion against God's law. And instead of trying to kill it, we want to preach the good news to it. So here's, here's my ultimate goal. This is as a pastor, as an elder who begins to, I, I, this is me, I begin to live this out, the new creation kind of elder. I don't care about controlling you. I care about sharing the good news of Jesus with you. I don't care about managing your behavior. I care that your behavior would be transformed by what Jesus has done for you. So this is what it means. The church of Jesus Christ, we don't care what you do. We care what you believe. And we only care about what you do insofar as it reveals what you actually believe. This is important because a lot of people who have turned a blind eye and turned their back on Christianity have done so because they have been sold a false bill of goods that being a Christian is about what you do. I challenge you and them to read through the Bible and you will come to find out that there is very little in this Bible that tells things about what you and I ought to do. What you will find in the pages of this Bible is a whole plethora of things that God has already done. This book isn't even chiefly, not, not even in a majority, not even, maybe even partially about what I ought to do. It's about what God has already done for us. And that's incredibly good news, monumentally better than any good advice that we might derive here. So here's, here's, here's the practical implications of this. It's okay, I think, I guess, this is, you know, said it, don't abuse this, it's okay to curse in front of the pastor. You know what I'm talking about? Like when a pastor walks around, like, ooh, ooh, hey, better, better clean up, better not do anything. I don't care what you do. I care what you believe. I care what you believe because what you believe has, a ch- has the opportunity to change your eternity. And if you want to test this, test this out on your own relationships. Test this out on your own behavior. Just this week, be about control rather than multiplying the gospel. Instead of multiplying the gospel into new areas of your life and preaching the good news to it that you will be transformed, just try to control it. For the rest of the day, stop sinning. For the rest of the week, please, people, would you just stop rebelling against God? For the rest of the week, would you just control your behavior and stop sinning? All right? Just quit. Please, stop it. And if you're successful, then I'm wrong. But I think that if you're not, then you will see that your only hope is for the good news to be applied to each area of your life. Try to control someone else. Forget controlling yourself. Just try to make someone else stop sinning. Try to make someone believe and follow in Christ. Try to make someone believe in God, change their life, and stop sinning. Just try to stop it. And if you're good at it, come over to my house and teach my daughters, right? But what I think you'll find when you fail miserably is that you can't control. Instead, you'll find that your only hope is for the gospel to abound. So that means that the gospel must be multiplied. It must be multiplied. Some of you, for some of you, you keep the gospel locked up tight on Sunday mornings for about an hour and a half. And for you, the gospel needs to multiply out of that. I mean, if you want to, you can try to, try to make this applicable. Try to, try to follow and be the person that God has called you to be by only investing about an hour and a half into thinking about it a week. Try it, but I think what you'll find is that your only hope is for the gospel to abound. And for some of you, you need to see the gospel change the way that you believe and think the rest of the week. Very simply. I have no desire to be your babysitter. There's no joy in that for you, and there's no joy in that for me. But I do want to point to you, point you toward a new life that you can have in Christ. And those things that destroy you and destroy the people around you begin to fall apart. Not only does this affect our behavior, but this also affects our community. It affects the way we multiply amongst ourselves. So in the New Testament, you'll see regularly that elders are formed and they're sent out from Antioch all the way to here, that these pastors, these instead of like having an elite group of people who are only made up the old and most experienced, which is interesting because most good, wise people learn from experience and most good experience comes from bad judgment. 
And instead of having a group of people of just the oldest and wisest among us, an elite group, we actually believe that this is something that's multiplied. So one day, we don't try to control this. Instead, we try to multiply it. We try to equip one another to thrive. So today, we're celebrating together. We're starting a new gospel community, a new small group. This will always be the case. We will always grow this way. We will always grow if the community grows. Not so that we can have more people to control, but so that the good news will abound. Because there are people that you and I know that do not know that there is a Savior. And so we want to grow this way. That means that there will be more pastors than just me. We will appoint elders. And if this is something you desire for, man, pray that this would happen because only God could bring this about. And here's what you'll find. You won't find me trying to control you or hold you back. In fact, you will find me trying to equip you to multiply the gospel. Here's why. One day, you're going to be, if this is you, you're going to be a better pastor than me. Because you're going to get to learn from all my mistakes. And you're going to be sent out to even be better. You can be, we're starting a church here, you're going to be a better starter than me. You're going to be a better church planter than me. Because you're going to get to learn from all my mistakes. And we as a church won't hold you back, but instead we will say the gospel must go. It must multiply because the minute it's about control, then the gospel dies. You're going to be a better preacher than me. You're going to learn from all my mistakes. You're going to be a better teacher. You're going to be a better father and husband. And you're going to do all this. And we want to equip you and empower you to do this. And already that sounds strange, doesn't it? Doesn't that, that scares you? Because you thought for a minute that the pastor was special, didn't you? Because you know what doesn't show up from here on out? Is the use of priests and elders. Instead, what you see is the apostle and elders. And do you want to know why? Because since Jesus has died, been buried, and resurrected on our behalf, the priesthood has now been set loose among his people. Such that the priesthood reference for the rest of the New Testament is you and me. We have a great high priest who has gone to the throne on our behalf and died in our place and made a perfect sacrifice so perfect that not only are we forgiven, but we are elevated to the status of fathers, sons. We are now priests. We're priests. We're brothers and sisters with Jesus. And that's because we're not interested in control. We're interested in the community being multiplied to the gospel. I don't care to be your babysitter. And I don't care to judge your actions. I care to point you toward the gospel. Here's a mentor of mine, the way he said it. He said it better than anyone I've ever heard, and so I'll just kind of repeat it to you. Um, So a, a woman came to him, and she was believing what most people believe, like you don't cuss in front of the pastor or whatever you do. It's like, like it's because it's special, right? Because it's about control. You've you got you to watch your behavior. You've got to stop doing it. Either that or lie about it and cover it up, right? Which is what Christians tend to be good at. And so she came to the pastor, and this is a mentor of mine, and she started the conversation in his office, you know, like kind of traditional way of doing this. She said, so pastor, do you want to hear about my sex life? And the pastor quickly responded, no. But I do want to hear about your prayer life. Isn't isn't that a radically different picture than what the world paints of the church? We care about your direct relationship to God through Jesus Christ. After that, the behavior stuff, Jesus starts to heal. The Holy Spirit starts to fix. We call it sanctification. We're growing in holiness. Because we've been justified before God, now we start to live accordingly. There's a beautiful thing. There's a beautiful thing also about community that I want to kind of leave it in this. When you aim for community, you don't get the gospel. You just get really cool club. But if you aim for the gospel, then you get community. And this is important for what we're celebrating today as we're starting another group. We get to eat some good food because that's in the book of Acts. If you remember, that's a theme. You get together, you break bread, you eat, you pray. Always got to have food, right? This is an important thing. So when Paul leaves here, his community wants to kill him. His community wants to destroy him. His community wants him to stop talking or else be put to death. But in our community, as communities are alive and active and they're fluid and they change, people come and go, we don't hate the people that leave, but instead we care for their soul. Because when you experience the gospel, a new kind of community is created. If you aim for community, you'll never get the gospel. But if you aim for the gospel, and a compelling sense of community is created. A community where you can, this will blow your mind, be honest. You don't have to have it all figured out. 
Because this is the community of people that admits that. This is the community of people, the church, the new creation, that it's only given good standing before God, not by what they've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And so therefore, we boast about our weaknesses. We let Jesus have them. I let my weaknesses be on full display for you so that you will ultimately, over the next couple of years, see the Spirit transform them. We happily admit where we fail because we don't care about behavior. We care about what we believe. Ultimately, it is not about us or what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. So here's a way to test it. As you look across this community and the way you sense community and the way that it's happening, are you okay with God changing the circumstances for the sake of the gospel going out? Are you okay with God changing this community for the sake of multiplying the gospel? Are you okay with some of these people, maybe in the years to come, I don't know how many years God's doing this, if it's going to continue to grow like this, then are you okay within a couple of years actually having to lose a big chunk, chunk of people in here because God's calling some of you to go somewhere else to plant a church somewhere else? Because that, I think, is what God is doing here. And that is why this theme of elder over control that is robbing Paul ultimately of his life goes away and the new elder, the new leadership, the new priesthood in God's people and the new leadership in the gospel begins to give life. It doesn't take it away. One seeks to kill Paul and in the gospel we seek to find new life. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your forgiveness. We thank you so much for we thank you so much for doing something for us that we could never have done for ourselves. We thank you so much that we can declare boldly that you are good and faithful, even when we are not. So for someone, maybe in this room, this is, this is foreign, this idea that, uh, that, that God is loving them, that God is caring for them, and God has sent his son for them, and that just seems foreign. They wouldn't call themselves a Christian. God, thank you so much. Would you, would you even begin to open their eyes now to the possibility that this might be true? that it's not what they have done that puts them right before you, but it's what you've done. May that create a, just an inviting and opening and compelling community. But for those of us, God, maybe we, we hold on to our own sense of approval. We hold on to our reputation. We're more worried about what people think of us than what you think of us. Would you begin to show us that that ultimately is a mark of the old way that's a remnant of the old thing that is broken and passing away. Would you begin to inspire in us a new life, a new life that, that gives us boldness. We can, we can confess our weakness. We can confess our sin. We can do so confidently knowing that now that we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. We know that Jesus has paid for all of these sins. And so we can boldly experience authentic and compelling and transformational community as a result. So for some of us, maybe right now we're just sitting on hidden sin. We're sitting on something we don't want to let go. Would you help us? Before the day's out, would you help us and give us the opportunity to confess that to someone around us? Give us the boldness to confess. This is wrong. This is not right. This is an idol. This is where I rebel against God, and I need him to make it right. I can't fix it myself. I can't control this myself. I can't do it. And then would you empower us as we hear that confession to instead of responding with good advice, respond to, with good news that Thanks be to God in Jesus Christ, there is good news. There is a new life. And he wants to do for you and for me what we could never do for ourselves. Let that be the cry of our community. Let that be the thing that changes us and gives us a common life together. In Jesus' name, amen.